Chapter 7. Why You Earned It. Fighting the Imposter. Trigger Warnings, Discrimination, Gaslighting. One of the biggest challenges you might face during your PhD is actually your own internal voice telling you that you are not good enough or don't deserve your place on the PhD programme. This is called the imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome. Feelings of being an imposter have been found to frequently be comorbid with depression and anxiety. The imposter phenomenon was first identified in the late 1970s by psychologists Suzanne Imes and Pauline Clance in their groundbreaking work, The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. They found high incidence of feelings of self-perceived intellectual phoniness, feeling like a fraud, among participants in spite of clear evidence of external validation. Since then, it has been postulated that women experience imposter syndrome more than men, though recent reviews of the literature suggest that over half of the imposter phenomenon studies to date show no significant gender difference, meaning men are also likely to struggle. Note, there have been very little detailed studies on the effect of the imposter phenomenon on non-binary and gender-diverse individuals. I want to acknowledge this. More research in this area is needed. There has been a push in recent years to refer to feeling like an imposter, the imposter phenomenon, rather than imposter syndrome. This is because the use of syndrome is typically used to describe a long-term and pervasive medical condition, and it is therefore incorrect to use this definition. Environmental factors also play a role, so the imposter phenomenon can be fueled by the environment we work in. For this reason, I will refer to feelings of not belonging throughout this book as the imposter phenomenon. The imposter phenomenon is a paradox. Other people believe in our abilities, yet we do not believe in ourselves. And yet, despite this, we listen to our inner voice telling us that we do not belong over the views of other people who can objectively see our worth. Elevated incidents of imposter feelings have also been observed in ethnic minority groups, particularly African-American, Asian-American and Latina, Latino university students. Several factors that increased psychological stress were identified that fueled the imposter phenomenon, including being first generation, the first in the family to attend university, financial pressures, returning to study and racial discrimination, indicating the problem is less about feeling like an imposter and more likely due to feeling actively unwelcome in academic spaces. Being part of any marginalised group within the academic setting, being LGBT+, having a disability, including mental illness, being a person of colour or a woman, etc., can also lead to imposter feelings due to lack of visible role models. The particularly tricky thing about managing feeling like an imposter is that you will likely think everyone else is struggling from the imposter phenomenon, but you are the real fraud. Even now, on reading this, you're likely thinking that I cannot see your unique situation. Therefore, you are the real imposter, and that I know nothing. For that reason, I'm going to use this chapter to highlight why you already deserve to be where you are, discuss how you definitely are not the odd one out, you really aren't, and how to fight these feelings when they happen. It is also somewhat ironic me giving you advice to master the imposter phenomenon. I struggle with it heavily, and even now, I'm still working on my internal voice telling me I'm not good enough. As I write this book, I wonder if it is actually just a load of rubbish, and if I actually know what I'm talking about. The fact that I hope that this is just the imposter phenomenon, not me actually being rubbish, is exactly the point. I think I am the odd one out, and I am the real imposter. Maybe I am, though. You get the point. 
It has been postulated that imposter feelings can also stem from being brought up in a highly achievements-focused environment. Perhaps more praise was offered when you did well on a test, or drew a picture that was better than your peers. Perhaps you were always expected to achieve, high standards were non-negotiable, and there was no room given for you to be average at something, or just do hobbies because you enjoyed them rather than to excel. The likelihood of this being the case as a PhD student is high, with on average only 1.1% of the world population, 2% in the United States and 1.4% in the United Kingdom, achieving a PhD. This heavy focus on academic success is also why the imposter phenomenon often comes hand-in-hand with perfectionism, discussed in more detail later in this chapter. To understand the imposter phenomenon, it is first necessary to understand some of the key aspects of a PhD programme that may fuel these feelings, Work by Chakravarti 2020 explores some of the common themes that trigger the imposter phenomenon, including receiving recognition, receiving critique, comparing oneself with others, developing skills, application of new knowledge, and asking for help. But first, we have to understand the value we bring to our research. Understanding the value you bring. When surrounded by extremely talented peers, it can be easy to see the accomplishments of those around you and find it difficult to see what value you bring. And yet, all our life experiences, good and bad, are unique to us and will shape what we contribute. Diversity is incredibly important when it comes to research. If we were all the same, there would be little innovation and we would not address the full range of societal concerns through our research as we might not even be aware of certain issues that exist. We can be so focused on comparing ourselves to those around us and what they bring to the table, we often do not introspect and recognise the value we have. We can also often think that the only benefits from our background are those from our academic achievements too, but this is not the case. Growing up in a different neighbourhood, having different hobbies, having to be a carer for a family member, etc. all give us unique perspectives and help with our research. You never know where your skills might come in handy, It turns out, hobbies are not just self-care, but can have practical use in our research too. Receiving recognition. Having your achievements recognised can be a double-edged sword when it comes to the imposter phenomenon. Our minds can use not getting our work recognised as evidence of us being undeserving of our PhD position. My mind used to say things like, I haven't been told I'm doing a good job, so I must not be good enough. My colleague won a poster prize and I didn't. I don't deserve to be here. I've not received any positive feedback recently from my PhD supervisor, so they must regret hiring me. And yet, when I did get recognition, this fueled my imposter feelings. They have got it wrong. I don't really know what I'm doing. Someone else deserves this award, not me. The first step in working towards managing these feelings is to realise that this is the imposter phenomenon talking and challenging those thoughts. A way to do this is to think... Would I have said that to a friend? If not, it's likely your inner critic being too loud. Next is to reinforce to yourself as to why you are deserving of your PhD position in the first place. The fact that you were accepted for your PhD programme means that you have a proven track record of being able to think independently, conduct research and have the background knowledge to succeed. That's right, you already have all the skills you need to complete your PhD. To be frank, if you were not capable your PhD supervisor would not take you on as a student because their time is valuable to them. An exercise you can do to remind yourself of why you deserve your PhD position is to write down on a piece of paper or sticky note. 
your education and work experience up to this point, five things you're proud of, your top five skills, any positive feedback you receive. By keeping this as a positive affirmation in your workspace, it can act as a constant reminder of your ability. Tip. If you struggle to write any of these objectively, ask a friend, colleague, or even your supervisor for help filling out these details. Now looking at the recognition itself, during the PhD process and academia in general, getting awards is highly competitive. Not receiving any awards does not mean you are not good enough. To be doing a PhD, you are already exceptional. Yes, really. Of course, we would all like national and international recognition for our work, but in reality, it is unlikely. Tip. If you feel you need external validation, ask your peers and or your supervisor for feedback on your progress so far. This should happen as standard through milestone meetings. In the event you do receive an award, remember that there is typically a whole selection committee involved in making the decision on who wins an award. They have expertise in their field and have been specially appointed to judge entries. The chance of them getting a decision wrong about awarding a prize are extraordinarily low. Are you saying they don't know what they're talking about? I guarantee they have not got it wrong for you. Receiving critique. It is human nature to focus on the negative comments that we get. In some respects, it is an evolutionary reaction because it is ingrained to respond heavily and give us more focus to situations that could endanger us. Unfortunately, critique can consolidate imposter feelings. Most of us remember a cruel or unnecessary comment and carry that with us and forget all about the positive interactions that we had. This is why having that store of positive feedback is so important. It is also necessary to consider if the feedback is being given in earnest or not. Consider the intention. Is it designed to help you improve your academic output and be successful? Note, sometimes we can also read tone into written text, even if there is none. Decide if it is constructive or destructive. Particularly when we are struggling with imposter feelings, getting feedback that we are doing a poor job can fan the flames. Unfortunately, sometimes critique can be given to intentionally knock us back. Tip. Are the comments polite? Are the comments personal, not simply going through the work? If this is the case, they may be destructive. Ask for clarification. Sometimes comments can be off the cuff, and yet they might stay with us for a while, long after the person has said something to us. Asking, what do you mean by that, so you can get more information, may be useful. Create an action plan. If you've been given some genuine critique, actively consider what you could do to improve your skills and how you can get there. If you're unsure on your next steps, consider going back to the person that gave you the feedback and asking for help. Comparing yourself with others. Easily done during a PhD, comparing outputs with your peers can be almost impossible to avoid given how highly academia relies on metrics as a measure of success. And yet, no two PhDs are exactly the same. They can't be, else they would not be original research. This means that it is impossible to truly compare two PhD outputs. You may see people around you publishing lots and wonder why you're not able to do the same. You may see someone's experiments working well and be trying to get yours to work for the 20th time. This does not mean you're any less capable than them, just that you are on different research paths. For me, as an undergraduate, I was on top of my class and excelled at whatever I put my mind to before I started my PhD. Cut to being a PhD student, I was surrounded by people that were just as clever, if not smarter than me, and this came as a big shock, 
particularly as my self-worth up to that point had largely been pinned on my academic success. The often hyper-competitive nature of academia can exacerbate imposter feelings as we feel pitted against our peers. This is a problem with the research culture itself, where competitiveness is often rewarded over collaboration. One of the best bits of advice I can give you is to fight against competing with those around you and aim to collaborate instead. Not only can this drastically improve your chances of publications by joining forces and bringing together different skill sets, but also can help with your mental health by having colleagues to share in the ups and downs of PhD study. Tip. The successes during a PhD can be few and far between, so finding joy in the success of others is a way to ride that high a little longer. Asking for help. Being at the start of a learning journey can also be a shock. You may feel out of your depth or not know where to start. This is where PhD supervisors, senior PhD students and postdocs step in. It can be easily forgotten, but a PhD is a learning journey. If you knew everything, you would already have your PhD. You're not expected to know all the answers or no detailed research methodology before you start. Given that everyone is so busy, you may feel like you're asking for a lot of help in the early days of your PhD, but this is entirely expected. You're not a burden. Developing skills and application of knowledge can take even longer. You may have to ask to be shown how to run an experiment several times before it sinks in. Again, this is more than okay. You're learning. You also cannot be expected to know all of the literature in your field within a year, or even your whole PhD. There is simply not enough time in the day. Redefining your self-worth. Starting a PhD, it's common and normal for the PhD to be a huge part of your life. A contributor to feeling like we don't belong is related to how we measure our self-worth, and you may start to run into trouble if you tie your self-worth only to your academic success. As we discussed earlier, not everything works during a PhD, and there are natural high and low moments. We can start to internalise feelings of failure when research doesn't go to plan and consider it a personal failing of ours rather than the research being difficult. Thoughts like, if someone else had been doing this, they would have progressed much quicker, or I don't deserve to be here as I keep failing, may start to creep in, which are absolutely not true, but our brains are really good at lying to us. It is important to remember your contribution to the world around you and your worth is not based only on your studies. You're not required to prove your worth by getting that experiment to work or getting good qualitative data back. You already intrinsically bring value to your PhD programme simply by being present. This is where having hobbies and an identity away from work is important, so that you have something to fall back on when your research is simply not working. Feeling good about ourselves through sports, art or going to a pub quiz, watching Netflix, etc. is important to decompress as well as find our value in other things. Our worth being pinned on our PhD studies can also trickle into our social interactions. For example, introducing ourselves and focusing entirely on our PhD. Of course, it is good to be proud of what you do, but it is not the only thing that defines you. Tip, look at your social media profiles and see how you define yourself. Does it just say PhD student? Consider what else you could put in there as to what makes you, you. This is important not only during your PhD, but also afterwards. Sometimes, it might feel like an uphill battle to carve out time for a life outside of your PhD. Ensuring you're being productive with your working hours and having a clear cut-off for the end of your working day can help. The work will wait. C. 
See setting boundaries and productivity and time management sections for more tips. Perfectionism. The need to be infallible and excel at our jobs is deeply linked with imposter feelings. Striving for perfection may feel like the best way to deliver on our research goals, but it may in fact be detrimental to both our mental health and our work output. There of course can be positives to having perfectionist tendencies, such as attention to detail, but perfectionism can also be incredibly debilitating. Perfectionism can be broken down into two defined categories. Excellence-seeking perfectionism and failure-avoidance perfectionism. Both can be detrimental during the PhD process. Seeking excellence can lead to hours of wasted time, such as tightening up manuscripts when they're already good enough. Failure-avoidance perfectionism can lead to not taking any risks during the research process for fear of failure, which can inhibit learning and discovering new things. Perfectionism may take shape as being hard on yourself and your outputs, more so than you would towards a friend, worrying about what others think, including people-pleasing, putting the needs of others above your own, procrastinating, fear of trying new things resulting in missed opportunities, inability to relax during downtime, constantly feeling not good enough. If left unchecked, these can be detrimental to your progress. Here's how you might go about challenging your inner perfectionist based on my experience. Operate on the principle of sufficiency. As perfectionists, it is easy to fall into the trap of the principle of ideality. This is where we're aiming to become the most ideal and most successful PhD student. In reality, this is unobtainable. It results in us pushing harder and harder, leading ultimately to burnout. Instead, focusing on what is sufficient to get us through our PhD programme is more sustainable. Note, most PhD programmes are pass or fail, so it is okay to not be aiming for 100% at all times. Appreciate your 80% is likely many others 100%. If you are a perfectionist at heart, understanding that your 100% is likely overkill and that a project doesn't need that level of commitment to be a success. Perfect is the enemy of done. If you are focusing on everything being perfect, the chances are that you are going to take longer on each bit of work you need to do. This can be detrimental long-term as it may result in you trading hours that could be used for self-care on finessing work that really did not need that extra effort. Further, when it comes to academic documents like papers and abstracts, your PhD supervisor will likely provide feedback to help you improve on them anyway. They're not expecting you to get it perfect first time. Test boundaries. One of the ways we can fight against our perfectionist nature is to actively deliver less on projects than what we would usually do. This can be very hard to start with, but you will quickly realise that less is in fact more. For example, setting a time limit on how much time you are going to spend working on a presentation, then working to that deadline. Email anxiety. Experiencing imposter feelings can fuel concerns over sending emails, known as email anxiety. This can result in spending large portions of time over the composition of an email, rewriting it and then being concerned about the reaction of the person that is going to receive it long after it is sent. This results in time lost that could be spent on research. Given that emailing is one of the most common forms of communication during a PhD, working towards managing these feelings is important. Assign a time of day to answering emails. If emails lead to increased stress and strain, dedicate a specific time of the day to managing your inbox. 
This way, it is easier to contain feelings of worry and anxiety to during that time period. Utilize an inbuilt email delay. Most email systems have the ability to send emails on a delay timer. By sending emails with a delay, there is time to check over the email one last time and make sure that you are happy before it sends. Remove your work email app from your phone. You do not have to answer emails all day, every day, and especially not in your evenings or personal time. Removing the email app from your phone means that it is much harder to access emails, minimizing time spent worrying about them outside of work. No people won't analyze the content like you do. Most people will receive an email and give it a quick read over, and that will be that. They will not be looking for hidden meaning in the email and likely will not give it a second thought. Check it is polite. The main thing when sending emails requests is ensuring that they are polite. For example, have you used please and thank you? If so, the likelihood is that the email will be well received. Use folders. If you get overwhelmed by emails coming in, consider using a folder system so that emails that are read but require a later action go into a folder for you to address at a later date. This means that your inbox will not be entirely full of emails requiring actions when you log in. Presentation nerves. It is common to feel nervous before giving a talk on your research. In fact, it is an indicator that you care about your research and that is a good thing, even if our bodies can overreact a little. Here are my top tips for navigating feeling anxious and or nervous before and during delivering a talk. Preparation is key. Knowing your presentation content and being able to speak in detail about it is important. Thus, taking the time to prepare is necessary. If you do not have much time or notice, make sure to write down the key messages you want to deliver. Have the first few sentences memorised. Having the whole of your presentation memorised can work but in some instances, it can also make a presentation feel a touch stiff. If you have the first few sentences memorised, you can get your presentation off to a good start and get into the flow of things, taking the pressure off. Realise people are there because they want to be. The people attending your talk are there to learn about your research. In short, they want you to do well. It can feel intimidating to stand in front of so many people, but know they want you to succeed. Remember, you are the expert. Although you may not feel like it at times, no one knows more about your research than you do. If there is research you do not quite understand yourself in your presentation, it is okay to say that you're still interpreting the data or omit that work entirely until you know more. Find a friendly face in the audience. Nearly always there is a smiling, nodding person in the audience. Find that person and look across at them from time to time during your talk. Tip. There are often several people engaged around the room like this, so you can look from one to the other to create a presence whilst you're talking. Another thing to think about is, can you be the friendly in the audience for someone else? I try to do this as I remember what it was like first starting out. That's a really interesting question. Another common issue at conferences is a bigwig in the audience asking a question, which isn't really a question, but a statement, which can make responding difficult. Having an answer ready to shut down this behaviour can be useful. Finally, I'd like to add, sometimes our talks don't go quite as we would like. No matter how much we plan ahead, it is important to remember that you're learning and that also includes learning to deliver talks. Many of us are not naturally gifted at giving talks and it will take time. 
Further, we can be our own worst critics. The likelihood is that the people watching hardly noticed any moments you thought you messed up. Be kind to yourself. Fighting back. So how might you start to combat that pesky imposter phenomenon? Celebrate little wins as well as the big. As PhD students, we have a tendency to always delay gratification. I published a paper, but I best start writing the next straight away. Celebrating the little wins as well as the big can help. This means getting an experiment to work or even just getting out of bed. Our victories are different on different days. Create a list of your achievements. Having a list of your achievements that you can look over in a low moment can help you consolidate that you deserve to be where you are. Tip. This could be as simple as scheduling in keeping your CV up to date in the event of a job coming your way so that your CV is ready for when you need it. Speak to a professional. If the inner imposter voice is too loud and affecting you in your professional and or personal life, speaking to a medical professional and seeking guidance is worthwhile. We can too often minimise the impact that feeling like an imposter has on us. Call out that inner voice. Would you speak to a friend like that? If not, call that inner voice out actively. You deserve to be friends with yourself too. Accept recognition. When receiving a compliment, it can be easy to be self-deprecating and laugh or joke about how we don't really deserve the recognition we are receiving. Next time you get given a compliment, try saying thank you instead. Realise perfectionism is not high standards. We can get into a cycle of aiming for perfect, and if we do not achieve this, then we feel we are not good enough. If perfection is getting in the way of completing tasks, your perfectionism has become more of a hindrance than help. Create a good mail folder. When you receive praise in an email or kind communications, transferring them to a good mail folder to look back on when you're feeling low is a way to remind you of all the positive interactions that you have had and why you deserve to be where you are. Now, if you have read this chapter and you do not experience the imposter phenomenon, there is nothing wrong with you. It is a great thing that you are confident in your abilities. You are not the imposter that actually doesn't feel like an imposter. Discriminatory gaslighting. As a final thought in this chapter, is it truly the imposter phenomenon you're experiencing or is it something more sinister? Discriminatory gaslighting, where dominant social groups or individuals discriminate against and exclude marginalised groups, can amplify feelings of not belonging. Sometimes, Discrimination can be active with targeted, cruel comments and be clear to see. Sometimes it can be much more subtle, leading to internalised feelings of doubt in one's own abilities. For example, there being few visible role models that look like you in your research department. For example, only 9% of chemistry professors in the UK are women. Lack of representation like this can reinforce imposter feelings subconsciously. You may feel that you do not belong, but cannot understand why. With the hyper-competition present within academia, it may also be that instead of being surrounded by supportive peers, they see you as a threat and are putting you down to elevate themselves. This could take the form of banter, mocking you for mistakes that you've made. Whilst this might seem friendly at first or just a laugh, it may be a form of manipulation to make you doubt your abilities. If you find yourself in this situation, try to surround yourself with people that lift you up not bring you down, and realise that it is their issue, not yours. Of course, this is easier said than done. 
The culture of overwork can also consolidate imposter feelings, making caregivers, including parents, feel as though they are not giving enough time to their work and feel intense conflict between work and home life. Minority and historically marginalised groups may also feel they do not belong due to experiencing microaggressions and lack of representation. More on this in Chapter 8. Advocating for better. What can universities do to help PhD students manage imposter feelings? Managing internalised imposter feelings is not just an individual issue, but one that universities can work to improve. In my opinion, by 1. Provide training. If PhD students have not heard about the imposter phenomenon, they may think that they are at fault or really do not belong. Holding specific seminars on the imposter phenomenon can help to make sure students are informed. 2. Not underestimating positive feedback. Ensure that PhD students are getting positive feedback from PhD supervisors, as it is common for focus to be placed on the next research goal, rather than taking a moment to compliment the work that has been done. It is important to celebrate these wins. 3. Provide opportunities for senior leaders to talk about feeling like an imposter. There is one thing me talking about the imposter phenomenon in this book, but it is entirely different hearing that people in positions of power we respect and admire feel that way too. Putting on panel discussions to enable these discussions is useful to staff and students alike. 4. Create networks. Mentoring is incredibly valuable for PhD students and can help build confidence and connections, as well as provide an opportunity to talk through feeling like an imposter with someone else in the field to get much-needed perspective. 5. Provide accessible healthcare. Sometimes therapy is needed to really combat imposter feelings. This could be through talking therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT or similar.